I'd like to say good morning again, but I don't want to do that because that could take forever and we might never get started. So let's just open your Bibles as quickly as humanly possible to 1 Peter chapter 5, please. Uh, one question as we get started this morning, and that question is just this. Do you believe that God is enough for you? Is he sufficient for your troubles? Can you trust him with your life? Do you believe that he can take care of you? I asked that question because I think I failed every time I asked it of myself. Um, not focusing on marriage, not focusing on parenting, not focused on financing finances, just focusing on the work aspect of my life. Three things jumped off the page to me where I just clearly see in my heart distrust of God, that he will not take care of me, and that I, in fact, need to take care of myself. Uh, one of the ways I see it is... Uh, trying to overcompensate for the areas that I don't think I do well in my role by over-preparing. And so it's not a good work ethic. It's distrusting God, and I'll fix this by just working harder and harder and harder. Anybody working hard to cover or mask shortcomings to make up for the things you think you lack, not trusting that God can work in and through your weakness. You don't have to raise your hands, but I now have all of your names memorized, and I'll call you later. Another way I see it is when something unexpected arises, problem, conflict, something unexpected, I, my default is to treat it like a mathematical problem that needs to be solved rather than an invitation of the Lord to trust him, to find him faithful, to walk in ambiguity for a time, hopefully not long, but walk in ambiguity uh, for a time. Instead, I want to fix my problems, and I want to fix everybody else's, and it creates an enormous weight, a burden that is not mine to carry. Anybody else trying to fix all of their problems, trying to fix somebody else's problems, and carrying an enormous burden um, stemming from a lack of trust that God's got this. God's got this person. God's got us. God's got this situation, God's got our health, God's got our finances, fill in the blank, whatever it is. A third way, and then I'll end the formal confession part of the morning. Uh, the third way is as I look forward to the future here with tremendous nervousness, despite the fact that God has never left me, never abandoned me, never said, hey, I'm going to go on a three-month vacation, you know, hold my emails, hold my calls. He always uh, responds. And so there's a thousand things I would love to see the Lord do here. And rather than having a posture of expectancy, a posture of excitement, thinking, I can't wait to see what God does for his people in this community, in part through us, through this church. Instead, what it is, is it's a sense of fear, concern, anxiety, uh, nervousness, anyone looking forward to their future with fear, concern, anxiety, uh, with nervousness, just flat out not trusting that God, who is God of yesterday, God who is God of today, will also be God of tomorrow. So this idea, will God take care of me, can he take care of me, significantly impacts the way we approach difficulty, the way that we approach adversity. And I know some of you are saying, if we say difficulty and adversity one more time, I'm leaving forever ever because I don't want difficulty and adversity. And the more you talk about it, the more likely it is to happen. I apologize. This morning, though, we will finish First Peter, and then we'll just have a little bit of Second Peter, so you are close to the end of all difficult things in your life. 
Pick up uh, with me 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's read the first four verses together. Um, before I read that, 1 Peter 4.17 really sets the table well for what we're going to talk about today. The whole gist of the book does. 1 Peter 2.12, suffering, enduring difficulty in such a way that people around us see our lives, watch our lives, and see Jesus. 1 Peter 4.17, Peter tells them, all right, guys, get ready. It's game time. This is like coaches huddle. You're out of the locker room. You're sitting on the bench. Players have been introduced. The national anthem has been sung. There's 30 seconds before the game starts. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Probably not something they were super excited to hear or to read. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Can we trust that God can take care of us? 1 Peter 5, 1-4. 1 Peter speaks directly to leaders. So I exhort you, or I exhort the elders among you, 1 Peter 5, 1. I, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory of what is going to be revealed. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, verse 3, over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and for, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, the unfading crown of glory. 1 Peter 4.17, judgment is coming, difficulty is coming, adversity is coming. Get ready, get ready, get ready. There's going to be a storm. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Get your generator, get everything wired up. Get ready, get ready, get ready. 1 Peter 5.1-4, elders, overseers, pastors, shepherds, it starts with you. Elders, pastors, shepherds, overseers, it starts with you. Lead well. Now, Peter here identifies himself as one of them, as an elder, as a shepherd, as an overseer. And he describes himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which is kind of an interesting way to introduce himself. And it evokes a little bit of this picture of Peter who witnessed the suffering of Jesus, who witnessed his death, who was there for the trial. And remember what happened to Peter, right? He failed spectacularly when the weight of what was asked of him reached that fever pitch. He wilted under the weight of it. In his moment of testing, in his moment of difficulty, he folded. He collapsed. So Peter writes to the elders and says, don't do what I did. Lead well. The church needs you. Lead well. And he gives them three pieces of instructions, a do this and a don't do this. Three pieces of instruction uh, in here in the text. The first one from verse 2, he says, exercise oversight willingly, not compulsory. Willingly, not compulsory. So the idea is of your own accord. Uh, willingly, not under compulsion. In other words, if your attitude is fine, I'll do that. I'll be a leader. I'll sign up for this team. I'll overseer, shepherd, pastor, elder, fine. I've been asked eight times, fine, I'll say yes. No, 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 that, that's, that's not what he's saying. 
don't step into it then. He says, do it willingly of your own accord. So this, the local church, is God's plan to bring about his purposes on earth. And so Peter says, step into that. Step into that opportunity. Step into that work. Opt in. Don't opt out. Do so willingly. How many of you know that when you do something, when you say yes under compulsion, your attitude stinks? Most of us? If you want to test it, you can go back to the preschool classroom at like 11.55 and say, hey guys, it's time to clean up and just see what happens when you try to, under compulsion, get them to put down what they're doing, pay attention to you, and clean up the room. So Peter says, guys, step up, step into this, willingly, of your own accord, and have a good attitude. This is God's chosen means, God's chosen plan to bring about his will on earth. Get excited about that. Uh, The second one that he says is, don't do it for what you will get out of it. Don't do it for scandalous gain. Don't do it for selfish gain, but instead do it out of an eagerness, a readiness of heart to serve the Lord. An eagerness, a readiness of heart to serve the Lord. And so uh, if your mentality when it comes to serving the Lord, if your mentality even in church life is, what can I get out of this? Well, this position has a lot of notoriety. This position doesn't, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes to that one. If it's, what kind of recognition can I get? Peter says, that's a red flag. Stop right where you're at. Don't do this for selfish gain, selfish financial gain, for personal recognition, for personal notoriety, uh, for influence. Do this eagerly as unto the Lord. How do you know if that's you? Well, one of the ways that this manifests in our life sometimes is if we don't get the recognition that we think we deserve, the thank you, the attaboy, the pat on the back, we opt out. They don't appreciate me. I did all of this, and they don't recognize it. No one said thank you. No one even said, hey, that was a tolerable, decent job that you did. No one said anything. I don't even think anybody noticed, and we opt out. And when we opt out, we lose, the enemy wins. Makes me think of high school sports. We always had people getting kicked off the team for smoking pot or for drugs. Every time they did, we lost, right? Because they couldn't play. They couldn't be a part of the team. They were booted for a week. We lost. A team suffers when the enemy wins and we opt out. If you're someone who is finding yourself constantly looking for that recognition or affirmation, Peter says, whoa, 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 whoa. this is not what I'm talking about. Do it eagerly as unto the Lord. The third one he lists is set an example. He says elders, shepherds, pastors, overseers should lead by the power of their example, not lead with the weight maybe of their position or if they're loud or um, persuasive that they wouldn't lead with a heavy hand. They wouldn't lead harshly, but lead as an example. really starts to get at the heart of do we trust God? Can you can you lead as an example or do you require, do you demand, do you press people to follow and obey? Uh, do you trust God to do a work in people's hearts or do leaders think that it's all about their good ideas and their winfulness, their persuasiveness to manipulate the direction or behavior? Uh, ultimately, Peter says, trust the Lord to do the work. And in verse 4, he says, and wait for it. When Jesus returns, there will be an unfading 
crown of life for you. In other words, you might not get recognized ever. Jesus has got it. You might not be approved of, thanked, responded to well ever. It's okay. There's an unfading crown, an imperishable crown waiting for you in heaven when Jesus returns. Picking back up in the text, let's read verses 5, 6, and 7 together. Um, Peter says, For the sake of the gospel, so that people will see and watch your good life and see Jesus, elders lead well, protect, shepherd, oversee, care for, look out for, pray for the church. And then he broadens his message and says, Church, yield to one another, humble yourselves, clothe yourself in humility. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God's work here and out there, humble yourself. Let's read the text, verses 5, 6, and 7. Likewise, he says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that in the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. As Peter presses in, um, admonishing them to clothe themselves in humility, uh, he focuses on the younger people. Now, who is often the ones that have the hardest time yielding to authority figures? Often younger people. Who have the hardest time looking up to maybe people that are older, more seasoned, uh, in a position of authority, and wanting to yield, wanting to listen, wanting to respect, wanting to hear their point of view. I've told you many times just about the wrestling that we had, even in our own home, with Nicole's mother, who watched our kids all the time. And when Ian, our firstborn, was with her at four, five, six, seven months, very young. We'd only been parents for five or six months, but we thought we knew more than her, who had been a parent for three decades. We dismissed a lot of what we said. We said, no, no, this isn't what you do. This is what time he needs to sleep. This is what time he needs to wake up. This is how he needs to lay. If you need to wrap him, you need to wrap him in this blanket. No other blanket will do. Don't use anything that you have. Only use the thing that we brought. Here's how you wrap them, roll them, tuck them, fold them. Right? There's 30 or 40 items that we'd say, here's what we expect from you. And if she didn't, to us, it was wildly offensive. Like, why wouldn't you follow all of our instructions? Right? And, and so just being parents for four or five or six months causes us to believe our way is the only way, our way is the right way, and your way is wrong, even though you've been a parent for three decades. He, Peter says, younger people, there's some serious wisdom in the elders in the room. He says, young people, yield to them, respect them, seek them out in so much as they point you to Jesus. Follow their lead you're a young person in here or identify as a young person either is fine find someone older than you find someone who is an elder a shepherd or an overseer in title or in function here and be around them find ways to be around them find what they're doing and then take an interest in that thing and try to do it with them peter says get ready a storm is coming young people fold in benefit from those who have gone before you and then he expands again his target and he says all of you clothe yourself in humility if you have your bibles turn to philippians 2 i want to just 
reference that text as an example of what it looks like to clothe ourselves in humility. As always, Jesus' life is the example how Jesus clothed him, his, himself in humility for our benefit. How Jesus gave up his rights for our benefit. Jesus sacrificed for our benefit. Jesus endured pain and suffering for our benefit. Philippians 2, uh, I'll read verses 3, 4, and maybe 5 through 8. Verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. How have we done with that this week? How have we done counting others more significant than ourselves? How much of our time, mental energy, resources this week we're devoted to counting others more significant than ourselves. For me, the first picture that stamps into my mind is uh, my parents helped pay for college. They helped with a, a portion of it, and they did not have the means to. And if I was advising them 20 years ago, I would say, don't help him because it wasn't a good idea. But I don't think they see it as a sacrifice. I don't think that they see it as a great thing that they have given up. I don't think that they see the ongoing consequences of uh, that investment, I th- I know that they see me as more significant than them. I know that they think first of my well-being and then second of theirs. I know that they put my needs above and beyond their own, and they don't even resent me for it. It came at a great cost to them. But it's what's ha- it what it's what happens when you put someone else above yourself. It will cost you. Someone said that. You can uh, give without loving, but you can't love without giving. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. We clothe ourselves in humility when we think of each other's needs first. How much of our mental bandwidth was devoted to our own needs, our own concerns, our own frustrations this week? That's verse 3. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I might just pause here and say, are you aware of the difficulty going on in someone else's life? Maybe someone sitting around you, someone else a part of this church family, a co-worker, a neighbor. Are you aware of what is going on in other people's lives that you're able to then take an interest in their interests? For many of us, we don't even know what's going on in people's lives because we're so consumed with our own. We've created no margin, so there's not space in any way, shape, or form to take an interest to be a help in someone else's. Many of you, our family especially, benefited by those of you who were prepared for snow, those of you that had a four-wheel drive vehicle, those of you that had extra water, those of you that knew how to connect things and and do stuff that, that we don't. Because you were prepared, you had margin to help others. Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verses 5 through 8. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Can we sacrifice for each other? Can we sacrifice our preferences for each other? Can we sacrifice some of our comforts for each other? 
can we sacrifice the way that we might want to do things for the sake of the group as a whole? Are we willing to? Do we demand our way? Do we demand our rights? We clothe ourselves in humility when we take an interest in what's going on in other people's lives. We clothe ourselves in humility when we put their needs above our own. We clothe ourselves in humility when we're regularly willing to sacrifice for each other. 1 Peter 2.12 So that those far from God will watch our lives find and see Jesus. There's a warning here. Paul says, Peter says, the Lord is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Lord is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're someone who walks in here on a Sunday and you look around and everyone else doesn't measure up to you, text says the Lord is opposed to you. You look around and everyone does it the wrong way and you do it the right way. text says, the Lord is opposed to you, but gives grace to the humble. How do we access grace? Um, the passage picks up in, in 6 and 7. How do, how do we access grace? Verse 7 or verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, you, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. There's no period between 6 and 7. How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? We cast all of our anxieties on him. Because he cares for us. Do you trust that you can cast all your anxieties on him? Do you trust that you can take those weights, those burdens, those relationships, those situations, those circumstances, those people, and entrust them to him? How do we entrust, how do we cast, how do we give our anxieties to him? Well, here's a few ways we don't do it. One, we don't do it by enduring our difficulty all by ourselves. How many of you know that so much of the Lord's faithfulness, so much of the Lord's provision, so much of the Lord's answers to prayer come through other people, come through his body? How do we cast our anxieties on him? Well, we don't do it in isolation. We don't do it by ourselves. We don't do it all alone. How else do we cast our anxieties on him? Another way that we don't do it is by trying to figure out difficult things in our own strength with our own reasoning by our own wisdom i suspect some of you maybe just a few because you're more holy than i try to fix your problems on your own like i do try to keep them under the radar off visibility uh, in the dark until you've figured them out got them managed and got it kind of put back together in a way that looks nice and rosy and cheery, right? We try to do it on our own, not trusting that God can take care of us. It's up to us, right? We believe good things happen to good people or the Lord helps those who help themselves, right? Those are nice cliches. Uh, they're on a lot of coffee mugs, but they really don't capture the gospel at all. They really don't capture our relationship with the Lord at all. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does it look like to be humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? It looks like casting our anxieties, taking our anxieties to him. Do you trust that God can take care of you? The third point this morning is for the sake of the gospel, watch out. Be spiritually alert. Be vigilant. The text says be sober-minded. 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, 10, and 11. First he says, elders, 
do your job. He says, church, humble yourselves, yield to each other, sacrifice for each other. Verse 8, he says, all of you, watch out, be ready. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Be sober-minded. What is the opposite of sober-minded? Intoxicated. What does it mean to be intoxicated? Your senses are dulled. Your awareness of what's going on around you is decreased. Your ability to see and identify and respond to warning signs is lessened. He says, be sharp. Be vigilant. Surround yourselves with people who are spiritually alert, who are not spiritually complacent, who are vigilant. Why? Because the enemy is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Can you imagine what Peter is thinking as he's writing these words, describing the enemy as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, thinking about all the times he put his foot in his mouth, thinking again about Jesus on trial when people look at him and say, you know him, you were one of his friends, you were with that man, and three times he says, no, I don't know him, get away from me, swears at them, curses at them, get away, I never knew the man. Do you think that he's thinking at this moment how quickly, how short our guard is down and how quickly we're devoured by the enemy? How many of you know that your guard does not have to be down long for the enemy to move in and get a stronghold and begin to devour and to be destructive and to destroy and create incredible pain and suffering in our lives? And in our relationships, our guard does not have to be down for just a second. So he says, be vigilant, be sober minded, be watchful, be alert, surround yourself with people who are like that. Saturate yourself with the word of God, not just on Sunday, but Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, not just to be informed, not just to learn something, but to be transformed, to be protected, to be renewed. He says, be sober be alert, be vigilant. I like that he uh, points out to this group of people who are clearly suffering and clearly will have more difficulty coming. He says, hey, it's not just you. It's, it's not just you. It's, it's everybody. You know, One of the things that's unique about at least being in, in the role that I have is getting to be a part of, of so many of your lives. It's just unbelievable the complexity and the layers of difficulty and of suffering and of unique and challenging things that the Lord has allowed in our lives. Uh, So many here uh, with relational uh, um, fractures, Uh, so many here, whether it's finances or health, where it just kind of feels like the rug has been pulled out from underneath you. Uh, The Lord is at work in our midst. The Lord is at work in our midst, and do we trust him? Is the difficulty is the difficulty is real, um, and that's not changing. And so, so Peter reminds them, it's not just you guys, you Christian, you Christ followers living in Roman provinces. It's it's everyone. It's it's everywhere. Um, and then verse ten, probably my favorite verse in the text. He says this. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, little. It's one of those words where like little, 
after you're three quarters, 90% of you are like little. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, the best is yet to come. And so when we think about the best being yet to come, we think of moving our focus from what is seen to what is unseen, from what is here on earth to what is true in heaven forever and ever and ever. A word that we use to describe our condition in heaven is glorification, where all residue, all stain, all consequences, all pain, All difficulty related to sin are removed forever and ever and ever. We read a little bit about this in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 27. Uh, It talks about the glorified state, talks about what happens when Jesus returns and removes all moral impurity. Uh, Ephesians 5, 27 says this, talking about what Jesus has done, is doing, and will fully do when he returns for the church, so that he might present the church, us, to himself in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing, that she, again us, the church, might be holy and without blemish. So at every instance where we're reminded that we are currently unholy and with blemish, we should look forward and not say, God has failed me yet again, but say, oh, God has a provision for that. That is temporary. That is not going to last. Me, with him, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, will not be defined, will not be impacted, will have no trace, no residue, no smell, no stink of sin. It's gone forever. The Lord has a provision for that when Jesus returns. It's not just moral purity. Uh, It talks about uh, new bodies in in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. 1 Corinthians 15. 42 through 44, don't, don't we know that our bodies are decaying? Don't we know that we're fighting physically with our bodies in this life? Don't we see in our bodies the residue of sin and temptation? Paul says this with regards to this resurrected body. He says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, right? We are very aware that right now we are perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown is dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. As you fight with your body, as you're even at war with yourself, Physically, would you consider that God's got that too? God's got that too. There's a provision made for that, that one day all of that will be removed. All of that difficulty, all of that pain, all of that suffering, all of that torment, all of that conflict will be removed. That God's got that too. A couple other neat aspects of this glorified state. Um, we have an increased invitation as participants in the kingdom of God. Second Timothy 2.10 through 12 says this therefore i endure paul talking therefore i endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in christ jesus and with it the eternal glory 11 the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him what does it mean one day we will reign with jesus 
right? Don't, don't we often feel like we're kind of on the spiritual bench? Like God's got his varsity guys, and then he's got us. God's got the ones who are doing a whole bunch of great kingdom work, and then there's us. And maybe at the end of the game, he might call us in for like 30 seconds of garbage time, but it's really inconsequential, and our effort doesn't mean a lot. God's got a provision for that. We get to reign with Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Um, 2 Thessalonians 2.14 talks about us being then partakers of his glory. And so I don't really even know what to compare this to where we get to partake in the divine glory, where we in some way get to share in the divine glory. For me, that's just beyond my mind to think that in some way we will be invited in for eternity to share in the divine glory as the ones who were sacrificed for, as the ones that the Father sent the Son for, we get to dine at the big kid table, at the adult's table, and we get to sit even in the position of honor that we get to rule and reign with Jesus and we get to in some way share in the divine glory. And so for all of us who are reminded daily that we seem to not belong to the divine glory, that we seem to be more uh, reflective of culture and more reflective of our sinful past than our perfect, holy, eternal futures. We're reminded that we're not just invited by the Lord onto his team, but that one day we get to share in the divine glory forever and ever and ever. I want to close with 2 Corinthians 4. If you have your Bibles, it's a great passage to, uh, to read and to memorize. 2 Corinthians 4, I'm going to read verses 16 through 18. Some of you remember that, that Peter's audience was on the verge of just kind of waving the white towel, waving the white flag. They're done. They're full up. They're ready to quit. Life is getting more and more difficult, not easier and easier. Those that oppose them, louder and stronger, not quieter and weaker, they are ready to wave the white flag. Some of us are carrying enormous burdens, and we feel like waving the white flag. Some of us are, are trying to fix everything for ourselves and everything for everyone else. We're looking forward to the future with fear, concern, anxiety. We're overwhelmed by real life, and we're overwhelmed by all the things that we think might happen at some point in some time in the future. Second uh, Corinthians 4. Verse 16, Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, amen, we know that, right? Receding hairline. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal church how do we take our focus off of the things that are seen and put them onto the things that are unseen how do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of god we do it by casting all of our anxieties upon him i think first peter four seventeen was true then and is true now things are getting more difficult not easier right Opposition to spiritual things is on the increase. It's not decreasing. How do we get ready? Leaders, do your job. Lead well. By example, guard, protect, pray for. The church, the flock, 
the sheep. Church, how do we do our jobs? We humble ourselves. We get over offenses. We work through our differences. And all of us, be alert, be vigilant, be sober-minded. Our adversary is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. If you're here and you're just overwhelmed by the weight of all these things and more, what's real, what's imagined, what might happen at some point, if you're just clinging to your stuff, your life, your problems, your challenges, the people that you care about that you can't help, trying to take ownership of all that, God's got this. God's got this. He can take care of you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are, you are good and says in your word that you're faithful even when we are faithless and we just know that and we live that every day and so we're grateful for who you are in spite of who we are Lord. we confess that that we don't trust you at times we confess that you've been so good and we fear our future so much we confess lord that every time something surprises us every time something catches us off guard our default is to fix and to manage and to power through and to navigate it on our own uh, not realizing lord that we have the the best uh, phone a friend imaginable lord that that you know all of these things before us lord that you've got this lord for those here who have not been able maybe for a very long time to take their eyes off of what is seen and move it on to what is unseen would you you help us to do that today? Would you lift these burdens uh, by your spirit and help us to cast them upon you, Lord? And may we feel, Lord, lightness uh, in our shoulders, rest in our souls as we truly cast them upon you and trust them to you. And maybe we feel that light yoke that you talk about. Lord, we release these things to you. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.